Amen. Isn't God good? He is. You can take a seat. Thanks, guys. Wendy, if you want to hang around, that would be cool. Wendy's playing the piano, and uh, as I said in the 9 a.m., not many of you know this, but I, I actually play the piano too, and I gear yeah, chopsticks and a few other things. And But when I want to try and play the piano at home, Wendy's always on the piano. Isn't that true, darling? And uh, when we were first dating, of course, we would try and impress one another with our ability to play the piano. And uh, it used to be a fight who could get to the piano, the piano first. But since a very young age, since Wendy was three or four, she would go to the piano in her house and play the keys and say a simple prayer, Lord, let me play the piano for you. And uh, she prayed that and prayed that and nagged her mother that she wanted to have piano lessons. And she finally got piano lessons. And I think today, since that time, the Lord has answered her, uh, her prayer to play the piano. And she plays for him. And it's just so wonderful. So thank you, darling. Appreciate all that you do with that. It's just absolutely wonderful. And thank you, team, for leading us this morning. It's great. Isn't that marvelous for um, Ashley and Gabby this morning? Just wonderful. What an incredible story uh, that is. A, a miracle-working God. And I, I don't know about you, but I couldn't help but notice that Ashley and his dad look like brothers. And Because um, <laughs> often people say that about Wendy and my, and my girls, that they look like sisters. So, But well done, Ashley's dad. Where, where are you? Great to have you and your wife all the way from South Africa. Thank you so much uh, for coming. It's wonderful. Well, today I want to share on the whole topic of this is our story. And I want to take us on a bit of a journey. And in fact, the Lord himself invites us into a journey, a story, the greatest story of all that has covered millennia. And he invites you and I to walk on this journey with him. And when I was young, my sister and I would go for holidays, of course, with our parents. And uh, when we were heading north, typically we would call in to Pitararu, about 70k away from here. And um, we'd always go and visit my auntie Pop. That's my dad's sister. And my dad was the youngest of nine children. He was the youngest by a long way. And uh, my sister and I always loved going to see auntie Pop because Auntie Pop told lots of stories and stories about my dad, which was always good fun because she had this sort of ability to make a just sort of nag on him and uh, we had great fun about that. And I want to share one of those stories with you. And um, she would be sitting at the table with her cup of tea and she'd be taking a little sip of it and she'd go, here's a story, it's about your father. And we'd go can't wait to hear it, Auntie Pop. And away she would go, and uh, she told the story one day, and they always seemed to start this way when the cherry trees were in blossom and the sun was shining. Your dad's brothers, and he had a number of brothers, I think five brothers, and their dad uh, was out on the farm doing some work, and um, my dad's dog ran into the house, was covered in muck and made a huge mess, and evidently my grandmother um, didn't like a messy house and um, said to my dad, can you get that dog out of here and get that dog cleaned up? So my dad goes about the process of getting the dog cleaned up and then the dog jumps out of the bath it was in and flies into the house again and then um, my dad's mum asks, 
what's that smell of kerosene in the place? Only to find that my dad had, dad had washed the dog in kerosene. And um, <laughs> to, to add sort of a bit of comicalness to this, the dog's name was Spark. And I think she was really worried that they were going to have a little bit of a fireball on their hands. Uh, as you can imagine, my dad got into a lot of trouble, and us kids had a great laugh. And, um, but there was something about this, these stories, and she told many of them. And I, I could stand here for hours telling you stories. And I can't remember any of the other conversation that was had around those tables as we'd come up but these were the stories that were told and we'd say only pop can you tell that story again and away she'd go and we'd never tire of hearing the story about my dad washing the dog spark and kerosene and there was there was just many many of them and and it had this incredible thing it, it made me realize and I didn't work this out at the time but my my dad was a kid at some time too and and the other thing it just opened up my imagination played a movie in my mind and all of a sudden this family story had been passed on to a generation that was now becoming our story and it was a delightful story and it was a fun story and I know every one of you have your own stories your own family stories and when others come into those stories they might think you're a little bit weird as you laugh what's so funny about that but you've got a context to that that makes that story fun and very real and part of who you are and so stories stimulate our imagination they stir up our emotions and not only stories things that appeal to our sense of humor and and make us laugh and have a lot of fun so stories can be very comforting for us when we're going through struggles and when people share their stories of struggle and when you're going through a similar struggle there's this connection there's the sense of being together because you're sharing something together it's a pain of a story but you're not alone there's somebody else who knows how you feel and that's comforting and stories are things that build families stories are things that we share together as families and so this morning I want to share some stories from the biblical account that will encourage us because stories is what we belong to and stories is what families share And uh, I just want to encourage us all this morning that we're part of the greatest story of all. And that's the story we share. We share that as a family. We place our faith in this story. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so I'm going to share a few things before from the biblical account as we um, have a look at this. But before we go, I want to share a story about Pastor Sheridan. So you ready for this? So Jay, Jay's here today, and it's great. To, Jay's studying as an intern this year, so congratulations, Jay. It's wonderful to have you part of that, and congratulations to you and the other Vision students here as well. Well done. So I, I said to Pastor Sheridan, I'm telling this story today. So he knows this. So um, and I think that's the only honorable thing to do when you tell a story like this. You've got to let him know that I'm telling it, so there's no surprises here. So Pastor Sheridan and I were on our way up to Auckland to a meeting, and uh, Sheridan makes good coffee uh, most of the time. And um, no, all the time. He's a good coffee maker. And we were driving up to Auckland, and there was a bump in the road. And um, he went over this bump with his coffee in the hand and puffed down the front. He was covered. It was an absolute mess. Because I said to him, well, that's going to look really good when you go into this meeting, isn't it? Having this coffee stain all down your shirt, it's not going to look good. So um, before our meeting, we were going to have a bite 
to eat. So we went into this mall and had some lunch. And while we were eating lunch, I slopped my plate of food right down my front. So here was Pastor Sherry covered in coffee. And here was me covered in food. And so I thought, well, we better go and get some new shirts, which is what we did. So we got some new shirts and we went to our visit, which happened to be with Pastor Paul Dion. And so um, we told him the story and he just laughed his head off and thought, well, that's great. But um, the story only gets better. And it's around this theme of food. And so we come home and my car is parked at Pastor Sheridan's place. And so we park up in his driveway and lo and behold, Jan is outside to greet us because somebody had just turned up and given her a gift. And in this, this gift was two crayfish. And um, so both of us are there saying, hi, Jan, how's it going? And she says, look, somebody has bought me two crayfish. And of course, Jan, bless her heart, said, Ray, would you like one? Well, as soon as she said that, I thought, I just, this is amazing. This is the day, because I love crayfish. I looked at Sheridan's eyes, and his eyes were just in horror. No, don't do that. <laughs> well, as soon as I saw that, yes, Jan, I'm taking it. So Jan's the hero because she is so generous, and both Sheridan and I, we were sort of having this take a wall for crayfish. So that's the crayfish story, and you'll hear it come up from time to time. But we love the crayfish, and we have a lot of fun with it, so it's, it's very, very cool. But I want to look at just a few stories this morning, and um, one of my favorite biblical stories is the story of Joseph. Joseph, um, is account is in Genesis chapter 37 to 50. Then I want us to have a look at the story around Moses and into Jesus, and then into one or two, well, certainly one of them anyway, generals of the faith that can really inspire us. So let's delve into the story. If you've got your Bibles, uh, let's have a look at Genesis chapter 37. And I'm just going to take you through a few highlights there. Joseph was a bit of a dreamer. He had these dreams from God. Uh, and in this story, there's lots of drama as we read through Genesis 37 to 50. And don't worry, we're not going to read all of that now. But in Genesis 37 verse 2, it kicks off that um, here's Joseph. He's 17 years of age. Who's 17 here this morning? Wow, that's cool, cool. Are you 17, Owen? 18, okay. Right, very good. <laughs> Explains a lot, doesn't it? So here's Joseph. He's 17 years of age. He's a shepherd boy. He's the 11th child in a family of sons. And his father is Jacob. And Jacob loves Joseph just a little bit too much. And his other brothers get a sniff of this and go, why does he get all the favorite treatment? When you're dishing out the lollies, why does he always get the most? When you're going down to KFC, why do you take him and not us? When it's going down to Wendy's for a burger, why does he get twice as much and we only get half a portion? So Jacob favors him, but also Joseph is a bit of a tale teller. And he likes to tell stories about his brothers and get them in trouble. And um, to add injury to all of that, if you like, 
Jacob says, Joseph, I'm going to make a special coat for you and presents this coat to him and then erupts this family feud. Here is Joseph's brothers absolutely sick of him and are hateful to him and are discussing how they can sort him out, sort of dust him up a little bit, get things on a level playing field because they're jealous and they're revengeful towards Joseph. And so Joseph's oldest brothers are out in the desert tending their sheep. And Jacob says to Joseph, go and see your brothers. Give them a hand. So Joseph, I guess, jumps on his donkey or gets on his camel or whatever it is and goes for a bit of a stroll out into the desert and finds his brothers. And the family feud was so, so deep now. And the animosity towards him was so great that their brothers plot how they can kill him. So this is not just a little family feud. This is a major family feud. Any been a feud like that, part of that in their family? I hope not. This was really happening for Joseph. And, and so the brothers decide they want to plot to kill him. And Reuben, the oldest brother, says, look, don't kill him. At least he's got some good conscience in this. There's a big pit over the ground. Let's just chuck him in there. And his thought was, I'll come back later, although he didn't say this to the brothers. I'll come back later and get you, Joseph. But instead of that happening, some slave traders turn up from Midian. And uh, they come along and they do a bit of a deal and they put 20 pieces of silver as the price to buy Joseph. I don't know what that's worth in today's terms, but 20 pieces of silver buys Joseph. And so Joseph is sold to an Egyptian um, army officer by the name of Potiphar. And he's a high-ranking officer that serves the pharaoh of the land at that time. And Egypt is the world's superpower. It is the, the place to be in terms of politics and culture and all those sorts of things. And so here's Joseph serving in Potiphar's household. He's a young guy. He's attractive. He's handsome. He's athletic. He's a good-looking guy. And he's got this ability from God to tell and interpret dreams. And Potiphar's wife takes a bit of a liking to him. And she makes these advances to him. And of course, he does a great thing. He runs away from them every time he's running away from them. And of course, things conspire and he, or she actually grabs him. And of course, she run, he runs away and takes part of her clothing, or leaves part of his clothing behind, I should say. And Potiphar's husband comes home and hears this account. And of course, she says that he attempted to rape me, and he ends up in prison. So here is a guy who is 17 years old, who's favored by his father, who goes out to help his brother. This is a raw, raw deal is sold as a slave, works for Potiphar, is accused of rape, and now ends up in prison. And I'm going, this guy goes, Lord, I've done nothing wrong, and everything in my world is going wrong. What on earth is happening here? Just so much drama in his life. He must have had some dark nights going, Lord, what on earth is going on with me? But the Scriptures say, God was with him. God's favor was upon him. And isn't it interesting, the scriptures say that in spite of his circumstances, God's favor rested on Joseph to such a 
point that in the prison, the prison guards saw the favor of God on him and put him in charge of many areas of the prison. And Joseph had this ability to tell dreams, and there were two dreams that were held by two different prisoners. One was a baker, one was a cupbearer, and he correctly interprets their dreams. And the cupbearer is restored back into the palace to serve the king. And Joseph says, as any of us would say, remember me. When, when you get to the king, remember me that I'm the one that interpreted your dream. Well, the cupbearer forgets, at least for two years, until the pharaoh has this dream about a famine. Well, that's what it turns out to be, because he couldn't interpret it. And so Joseph gives the interpretation. And all of a sudden, Joseph is out of prison, and he's elevated to the place, the highest place in the land next to the king. He becomes the prime minister. And here's this amazing story, and I love this story. Here's a man sold into slavery and now becomes the prime minister. Incredible. But the story only becomes filled with more drama because for years and years, he's carried the hurt and the pain of the rejection from his family, from his brothers. And of course, as the, the famine develops throughout the land, Jacob's brother, sorry, Joseph's brothers, 10 brothers, come to him and they bow before him and they're seeking food. And as they bow before him, Joseph reflects on a dream. This is the fulfillment of a dream he had when the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed before him. And his brothers don't recognize him. Joseph pulls aside to a room. All that pain just bursts out and he just cries uncontrollably as years and years, decades of pain and anguish is poured out of his soul. And equally, the joy of seeing his brothers. The tension there. His brothers going, what on earth is going on? And there's many other twists and turns in the story. But here's one man who was sold as a slave. He becomes prime minister. And he utters these amazing words to his brothers when he reveals himself to them. And he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That was his story. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Here was a man that was treated harshly and incorrectly, imprisoned, enslaved, falsely accused, put in prison, falsely accused. And he turns to his brothers and says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I want to ask you right now, in your story, are there people that have treated you wrongly or harshly? People that have treated you unfairly? Can you say what Joseph said? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. What Joseph is doing is saying, I forgive you. I let you go. I'm not holding you guilty. And I'm not seeking revenge for you. It's such a powerful thing that Joseph has done and does. And so I just want to ask us right now, just where you are, if every person would close their eyes and bow their head and just cast your mind over, is there anybody that you're holding unforgiveness towards or bitterness against? 
Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a workmate. Release it to the Lord. Say, Lord, here I am. Forgive me and I forgive them. God desires that we exercise mercy and forgiveness to others so that we can live in freedom. Because Jacob, although he was enslaved and became prime minister, the greatest freedom he had was to forgive his brothers. And that's the freedom that the Lord wants us to walk in, is the freedom to forgive others. That scripture again in Genesis 50, 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. An amazing story. One man's story. Being sold into slavery, promoted to prime minister, and set free of the bondage of unforgiveness, set free of the bondage of holding bitterness, and forgives his family. One man. What an amazing story. And so that happened in Egypt, and 400 years passed by. And rather it had been one man who's in slavery, now it's the nation of Israel, millions of people who find themselves in slavery under a pharaoh with tough taskmasters. He's beating them, who's killing some of them with a slow process of genocide. And here are these people, oppressed and in slavery. Not one man, but a nation. And Moses has been called by God and goes to the Pharaoh. Let my people go, is what he says. And the story develops, I know you know it well, where God performs amazing miracles, where a river is turned to blood, and there's many, many miracles. God shows himself to these people. And after these series of miracles, Moses goes to the Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And the Pharaoh says, I'll let your people go. Only if he had said that earlier. It's an amazing story. If you were Moses, think about this. Place yourself in the story. You've got a whole nation that has been about to be released to go into the promised land. And you've seen the king. And the king has said, let the people go. And you're going to go and tell the people of Israel, we are free. We can go. What would you say if you were Moses? Would you do the Winston Churchill thing? <coughs> Excuse me, I've got a bit of a cough. We will fight them on the beaches and we'll fight them on the landing grounds. We'll fight them in the fields and in the streets and we'll fight them in the hills. We'll never surrender. What an inspirational speech that galvanized the nation in the Second World War to fight for freedom. Would you say that? Would Moses say that? Would you say that before us is a land flowing with milk and honey? New opportunities, wonderful, wonderful opportunities before us. Would you talk about the demands of crossing a desert? What did Moses say? It's really, really interesting. He didn't talk about the promise of freedom, although that's what they were going to receive. He didn't talk about a land flowing with milk and honey, although that's what they were about to enter into. He says, tell the story. He says to parents and to the future generations a long way out, 
never forget this moment. Tell the story of what happened to the people that were in slavery. Tell it to your children. And Moses goes at length to say, tell the story. And I want to read to you from Exodus chapter 12, verses 25 and 27. It shall be that when you come to the land which God will give you, as he has said, you will observe the ceremony and your, children's, uh, and your children say to you, what does this service mean? You're to say, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. We passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egypt's, Egyptians and spread our home. This is the story. God set us free from Egypt. In Exodus 13, 18, on that day you should tell your child, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Here is a generation way, way down the track. And Moses says, this is what the Lord did for me. This is what the Lord did for us now. This is the story. In Exodus 13, 14, in the future, when your child asks you, what is this? You shall tell them, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us up out of Egypt from the land of slavery. Why is telling the story so important? It's a big question. The story is so important because there's nothing like a story to spark our imagination. There's nothing like a story to spark our identity. And an identity needs a memory. And a memory is encoded in the stories that we tell. And so the stories need to be told and retold and retold so they become part of our memory. And as they become part of our memory, they become part of our identity. That's who we are. And it's through this simple, simple thing that sparks emotion, that draws connection, that says we're a family because we belong to this one story. The story that started with one man who was sold as a slave, who became Prime Minister. The story that started with a nation that was led by Moses to freedom. To finally the story climaxing with one man, the God-man, Jesus. He came not to just set an individual free or the nation of Israel, but all of humanity. To set them free from the law of sin and death, that they might be in the fullness of freedom and life in Jesus. That is the story that we all belong to. That is the story that Jesus said at the Last Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time you meet, take this bread, take this wine. This is the story. This is the memory. This is what we tell because this is where we belong. This is the family of faith that shares this story. Isn't that awesome? Absolutely wonderful. It started with a man and with Joseph. It started with a nation. And it comes to Jesus. And he says, this is the story. This is our story. This is the story that we share. Jesus says, in this story, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. The truth of this story is that we are bound in our sins. But the truth of Jesus is that He sets us free from our sins. That's the story that we're all part of. 
The hymn writer Fanny Crosby wrote a hymn. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 gives a lengthy list of the heroes of the faith. As they start in the early readings of the Old Testament through to the New Testament or up into the New Testament. In Hebrews 11, 39, it says, And all of these, though, and this is the heroes of the faith, though they won divine approval by their faith, did not receive the fulfillment of what was promised because God had us, you and me in mind, and had something better and greater in view for us so that they, or these heroes of the faith, should not come to perfection apart from us. God is saying, here's my family of faith. And we share a story from Joseph to the people of Israel in Christ. It's our story. We are the family that own this and live this. And I want to tell you a story about a general of the faith who was born in 1870, who really knew what it was to be part of the story He said, I want to give my life for this greatest story of all. His name was John G. Lake, born in Canada in 1870 and moved to the USA where he married. He writes about his childhood. He said, my childhood was very, very um, sad. He said, I had 15 brothers and sisters, including himself. He remembers many of them uh, spending time in the hospital and they lost eight of his siblings. In 1893, he married his first wife and had seven children, and his wife became very ill, and his children were not well. And he heard about an evangelist who prayed for the sick. So he took his wife and his children to this meeting one night uh, in the early 1900s, and his wife was supernaturally healed, and his children were too. And the news of this spread far and wide, And so people would come to his home and say, tell us the story of what happened to your wife and your children. And then people would invariably ask him, can you pray for me that I might be made well? He said, well, I'm not into this. And they continued just to ask them, will you pray for us that we may be well? And so he went, okay. He prayed. And all of a sudden, the supernatural, miraculous power of God was released. And people were getting well. He describes himself as the reluctant healing evangelist. He said, I never sought this out. I never went after this. God came after me and he asked me to pray and that's what I did and people got well. Isn't that awesome? That was his story. In 1908, he felt called to go to South Africa. So he and his wife and his seven children with another Christian couple went to South Africa. They raised $4,000, which they thought was enough, and they traveled through a number of ports until finally they arrived in 1908 in South Africa. And they were in a long queue to meet with customs to get into the country. And as they're lining up, they find out that they have to present $125 to the customs agent before they can get into the country. He only has a dollar and 25 cents in his pocket. And he's going, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Because without the money, he's not going to get in. So he shares this with his wife. And she says to him wisely, let's pray, God will provide. And so they pray. And within a, it was just moments later, this man came up. He, 
accounts, taps him on the shoulder and pulls him aside and says, can I have a few words with you? Which he agrees to and says, look, I feel in my heart that I need to give you this and gives him 200 US dollars. Isn't that awesome? Miraculous. And so he gets into the country. So here's the next thing. He's got into the country now with $200, which is wonderful, but he has no place to stay. This woman comes up to him and says, are you a missionary? And she'd been asking a number of people, are you a missionary? And they would say no, and she would just move on to the next person or the next couple. And she came up to them and said, are you a missionary family? To which they responded to, yes, we are. The next question was, how many children do you have? And they said, we have seven. She said, right. The Lord gave me a dream last night to come here to meet a missionary family with seven children and I was to give them my house rent-free for as long as you wanted it. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Praise God. And so there they were based in South Africa. He led over one million people to Christ. Isn't that awesome? One million people. And a plague broke out. And the doctors didn't know what was causing it. And people were dying all over the place. People were getting very sick. And John G. Lake said, I've got to do something about this. So he began to hold funerals and bury the dead and pray for the sick. And the doctors said, you've got to stop. You're going to catch this plague and you could die. And this is what he said in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. He said, I will not die. Here's Romans 2, 8, 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So strong was his conviction that the law of life in Christ Jesus was greater than any sin or any sickness. He said, this will not touch me. The life of Christ in me will flow through me and overcome every sickness and disease. And so he saw thousands of people healed planted over 1,000 churches. Amazing, absolutely amazing because he read the story, believed the story. The story now was becoming his. And I'm sharing part of that story with us that we are part of the story too. But as amazing as all of that was, all not was well with John G. Lake. And here's a lesson, and you can always take lessons from stories, can't you? That's what I enjoy about stories. You can have a laugh about them, but some of them, you can learn great things from them. And one of the things in John um, G. Lake's life was, although his wife had been supernaturally healed earlier, she died in 1913. <coughs> Excuse me. And his family, his children, blamed um, him for killing her. They said because he worked so hard and never took a break, and the demands of the ministry were so great, she was so exhausted and died of exhaustion. And so as wonderful as his ministry is, outstanding, here's the, les the, the lesson. Let's grow and absorb the faith adventure that God has for us, but equally have the rhythm of rest and valuing family in right balance. It's not only in ministry, but it's in our work life, whatever. God has called us to, having that balance right. After his wife died, he returned to a place called Spokane in Washington in the USA, where he set up what's called the healing rooms. And um, he prayed for 
thousands and thousands of people. And it's documented that there are over 1,000 documented healings. And Spoken in Washington was declared the healthiest city in the USA. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing? So here's the thing. Here's a man, Joseph, was in slavery. God leads him to freedom. What a wonderful story. Here's the nation of Israel. Through Moses, God leads them to freedom. Here's this amazing story that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, leads all humanity from slavery to sin and death to freedom and life in Him. An amazing story. But here's the thing. Jesus chooses 70, and then it's 12 disciples, and then it's the one. It's the you and the me. And He says, go. Go into all the world and share the story. This is your story. This is our story. And it's the greatest story that's ever been told and the greatest story to be told. And here's what a story does. It gives us a place where we belong. It gives us a place that we're part of. It's our family. It gives us a place where we place our faith in. And I want to end with this story. And I know... Many of you have heard it before, but I love this story. And I know you've got your own stories too. But this story taught me about God's unmerited favor. It's the story of Mrs. Sinclair. You know it? Yes. Who doesn't know the story of Mrs. Sinclair? Okay, one or two hands. For your benefit and to encourage us all. This is what we're going to end on. When I was about nine or ten, um, I, I was a bit of a mischievous kid, got up to a bit of trouble, and, uh, but nothing too serious. And my friend and I, who's actually um, a doctor who, who works, um, or did work, until Tony retired, Dr. Tony Smith, he's part of our congregation. I worked with Tony for years. Stephen and I decided, and I don't know why we decided to do this, to go to my next door neighbor and fill up her letterbox with stones and dirt and rubbish and old newspapers and anything we could find. I don't know why we did it, but we did. Yeah, indeed. And after doing that, do you know when you do something that you know you shouldn't have done? You run off, you're too frightened to fix it up, but you're too scared to do anything else, so you're sort of sitting in this no man's land. And then I'm thinking, man, if my dad finds out, I don't know why I didn't think about this at the beginning, but if my dad finds out, I'm in serious trouble. It's going to be a bit of a sore behind when you could do those things in those days. And um, <clears throat> my friend came up to me, and I was pacing up and down my, our driveway, thinking, what am I going to do? And my friend came up to me and said, Mrs. Sinclair wants to see you. Oh, no, Mrs. Sinclair wants to see me. I thought, well, I'd rather see her than see my dad. And uh, <clears throat> so I knock on her door. My heart, I can still remember this. My heart is pumping through my chest. Boom, 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 boom. Knock on the door. And here's this old lady, turn, you know, stooped lady, gray, blue rinsed hair, whiskers out her chin. It's, it's true. She's, yes. And uh, she invites me in. And I walk through her kitchen into her dining room room table, and there she invites me to sit down at her dining room table, and here is two glasses of lemonade and a plate of more arrowroot biscuits. 
And um, I was just thinking about that glass of lemonade. I wonder if it's got any poison in it or not. <laughs> and we started conversing, and well, she conversed, and I just said, yes, no, and I was just waiting for the big moment. You don't put stuff in letterboxes like that. Um, and she, all she said to me was, letterboxes are for letters. Enjoy your drink. Enjoy a biscuit. And I thought, wow, is, is that it? And on that day, God taught me a lesson about His grace that I've never forgotten. I never deserved that. Not one of us deserves the salvation of God. Yet in His kindness, He pours it out on each one of us. And it wasn't until years later that I realized her name, Mrs. Sinclair. She cleared my sin. Isn't it amazing? She cleared it away. It's what Jesus does for each one of us when we place our faith in Him. He clears our sin away. Well, it was about five years ago. I thought I'd go and see that letterbox, see if it's still standing. The one I tried to sort of mess up a bit. We lived in a cul-de-sac. There wasn't too many houses, probably 30 or 40 at the most. Maybe 30 actually. Drove past number 17. Pristine white. Without a word of a lie, the best looking letterbox in the whole street and I go wow thank you Mrs Sinclair your influence in my life is part of my story it's a story that I share because it changed me each one of us has a story to share with those around us what's your story what's your story because your story sparks the imagination of another generation. Your story transfers faith from this generation to another generation. It's a story that is ours. It's a story that we belong to. We share it together as family. Isn't that an awesome story? Can I ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads? Father, I thank you for story. Lord, we can have lots of different conversations, but it seems that the power of a story is, grips our hearts and our imaginations and takes us into places that nothing else can. And Lord, we thank you for the life of Joseph and his story from slavery to freedom, the story of the nation of Israel from slavery to freedom, and the story of Jesus, who has given the offer, the invitation to all humanity to move from slavery of sin and death into life and hope in you. And if you're here today and if you know that you're not part of the story, if you haven't responded to Jesus' invitation to turn from going your own way and receiving his special gift of salvation, if you haven't done that or you're not sure where you stand with that, can you take a few moments and contemplate that? And if that's you, raise your hand and I'd love to pray with you. That's why every head is bowed and eye is closed. Cool. Father, we thank you for story. We thank you that we're part of it. We thank you that this is our story and each one of us has a special place in it. And Lord, as we go out into this week, 
Father, may we share your story, our story with those around us, that, Lord, they can become part of this great story too. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, Amen. God bless you. Thank you, church.